0: Welcome to the Friday's subscribers-only edition of The Hub Dialogues, the podcast of The Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of The Hub Dialogues. Sean Stewart, great to be with you guys again. Hey,
1: Rudyard. Hey, Stuart. Hey, guys. Well,
0: this show, uh, we're going to spend our time focusing on uh, the for real conservative leadership race, uh, federal leadership race that is uh, kicking off. We've had Jean Charest enter into the contest uh, formally this week. Patrick Brown uh, supposedly uh, all geared up for this coming Sunday. Pierre Polyev firmly in as the perceived uh, front runner, Leslie Lewin, and who knows who else might be uh, throwing their hat into the ring. So let's spend the first half of our time together, guys, uh, handicapping this a bit for our Hub subscribers and listeners. And then let's spend the second half of the show doing what we like to do at the Hub, which is try to tease out some of the big policy implications and debates that are likely... Uh, to shape this race. So let me come to you first, Stuart, uh, as our editor in chief in Ottawa with The Nation's Pulse. How are you handicapping the race net right now? What are you seeing and hearing on the ground in terms of the relative positioning of, let's say, the four front runners that we currently uh, have on our radar?
2: Yeah, I think so. Not only am I in Ottawa, I'm actually in the riding that neighbors Pierre Polyev's riding to. So uh, he was actually at the overpass That's like 30 seconds from my house when he was greeting the freedom convoy. So, uh, (laughs) I actually just missed him. Um, so it's an interesting uh, situation right now because what I actually thought seems to be borne out by recent polling. So, um, Pierre Polyev is the favorite 41% of conservative voters think that he's the guy, and then the next person after that is Sharae, with only 10%. So what that means is Polyev has got to go after current members. He's going to be doing a lot of that. And then people like Sharae, people like Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, they're looking at more moderate voters and what they're gonna be doing is signing up new people. And then you have Leslie Lewis, who um, she will most likely be going after the social conservative vote, which you know that, that tends to be around a third of the voters in the race, it's pretty solid. Um, so we can, we can start to actually get an idea of what might happen when the voting actually starts.
0: Thanks, George. So Sean, you know, you're always proving your bona fides as our editor at large and none other this week than sitting through, I understand, Sean, if I'm correct, uh, Jean Charest's event, the virtual event, you caught some of that live online. Uh, What was your sense of the kickoff of his campaign in Calgary? Um, How was it positioned? More importantly, what does it project about his candidacy? Those opening events are often, you know, very carefully, you know, scripted. They're about projecting a narrative, a story. Uh, what was your takeaway of the charade launch?
1: Well, first of all, of course, um, it was purposeful um, that it was hosted in Alberta. Um, you know, I think that it was an, an effort to try to mitigate the perception um, that this is a candidate um, with most of his support concentrated in, in Quebec in particular and central Canada more generally. And so going to Alberta to kick off the campaign. Uh, was to try to convey that he is indeed a national candidate. I would say just generally uh, Rudyard and Stewart, uh, you know, it seems to me that uh, Mr. Charest is still trying to find his voice um, in today's conservative party. Listers will know that he's actually led one of the two legacy parties that formed the, the, the new modern Conservative Party of Canada. So it's not to say he doesn't have experience in the world of conservative politics, um, but a lot has changed in the intervening um, 20 plus years um, since he, he led the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. And so I think at the launch and in the coming days, he's going to continue to have to fine tune his message to connect uh, with core conservative voters um, because as Stuart says Rudyard, there's a significant gap amongst conservative voters in terms of uh, support for Per Polyev at something north of 40% and Mr. Sharay barely at 10. Um, and in, if he can't find a way to connect his story and his message and his policies with core conservative voters, it doesn't matter um, that he thinks he can compete with Justin Trudeau in a general election campaign. This is a two-step process and you got to get through the first step to get to the second. And I think that's the big question Uh, for Mr. Shray and I think it remains a question um after his launch in Calgary this week Mm -hmm. thanks Sean so
0: Stuart let me be a little bit catty here uh (laughs) I mean let's talk about the launch okay because for those of us again who enjoy you know parsing the tea leaves on these things there was a video that was released maybe I'll let you describe it Stuart and then there was an event which the Calgary Herald reported 50 attendees um I don't know I don't know what to take away from that. I mean, again, great that he's gone to Alberta, but to launch a national leadership bid for one of our great legacy parties with 50 attendees and a video that I could only describe as I don't know surprising that a politician as sophisticated as Sheree, arguably with the infrastructure and I would assume resources around him would release such a, I can only describe it, Stuart, as like bare bones, kind of in the bunker type video presentation to formally announce what should be a very big celebratory energetic uh, event at occasion. What what was your takeaway?
2: Yeah, it was like a birthday message from your granddad, um, like on an iPhone or something. And, you know, this was, I I have struggled with this because I Um, I don't know anyone in the charade camp. I don't know what he's thinking. And I have struggled with trying to decide whether he understands the magnitude of what he's undertaking here or whether he's a little bit clueless and he's about to come in for a big surprise. Um, I would just point out that on April 9th, Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta is undergoing a leadership review because he's not conservative enough for a significant part of the Alberta population. Um, that should tell you something. Um, and I think maybe he can look at Alberta and say that is um, something on its own. I-, I can let Pierre Polyev go to Alberta and get all those votes, and I can make the argument that he can run up the score in Alberta like Andrew Scheer did uh, in a general election and lose to Justin Trudeau. Um, but I also think that that is a sentiment that is part of this party uh, in some sense throughout the country. Um, so you know, it remains to be seen. This launch, I think, made me feel a little more confident in the idea that Sheree is maybe starting to realize what he's getting into after last night. Um, But this this could be, there is always the possibility that this just goes horribly for him. And then a younger candidate like Patrick Brown, who takes up the same space, just looks more appealing. Um, It it could easily go that way. Mm -hmm. So Sean, again, I don't
0: want to be, you know, superficial here, but We are in a, you know, a visual social media age. This campaign is going to be run and fought digitally more than anything else. And I just I look at that video. I mean, again, uh, I salute Jean Charest for his willingness to to do this. It's a hard thing to do. But, you know, he's seated at a desk uh, with no one around him, with a blank wall, a blank white wall behind him with no graphics. a red cup is kind of situated slightly out of frame and there's really nothing else there's no visual cues there's no presentation and it's a very kind of i think somewhat dry 30 40 second, you know recantation of you know his greatest hits and why he feels passionate about running it just i, I don't why would any campaign release that as at the beginning of uh, what is gonna be a tough, tough race for Jean
1: Charest. Especially since, of course, I think one of the potential vulnerabilities for Mr. Charest is a perception that he's yesterday's man, um, that uh, he, he's, he's, he's old, much older than the other leading candidates uh, in this race. He's older than the current prime minister. Uh, much of his, his kind of pitch to voters uh, draws on things that were you know over 30 years in the past. Um, And so to launch um, in a kind of befuddled way, um, looking um, um, ill-equipped to kind of manage uh, the world of of social media um, only reinforces that perception. I mean, it's worth observing for listeners that yesterday was not just the launch of Mr. Shrey's campaign, it was the launch of his Twitter account. And now juxtapose that with Pierre Polyev, who I think it's fair to say is probably the most effective user of social media in, in Canadian politics today. His videos um, on, on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and elsewhere consistently run up thousands and thousands of, of views. He's kind of figured out the medium, um, and, and particularly as it relates to um, communicating with core conservative voters who are suspicious and skeptical of, of mainstream Media these days, so I, I think it, it it speaks to a much deeper set of challenges for uh, for Mr. Schre and conveys that as as Stuart says, he's a bit and him and his team appear a bit out of touch with kind of modern realities in the world of conservative politics. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's talk about Patrick Brown. He's gonna uh, the mayor of Brampton, former MP. Uh, big week for him Uh, supposedly an eight million dollar settlement of his uh, lawsuit with the CTV over uh, reporting on allegations of sexual impropriety when he was uh, the Ontario Conservative Party leader which forced his resignation Uh, so that's big news for him but more importantly this Sunday he's telegraphing his campaign will will press the go button so Stuart how does that change things i mean to what extent does Sheree and brown together kind of represent a wedge that uh, Pierre polyev will have to push against both to claim ontario voters which would be arguably key to polyev's strategy and brown has an impressive as we know uh, network amongst uh ethno-cultural communities across the country but especially in ontario and then you've got, you know, Sharay and Brown, and some musing in the background that they may have a kind of informal pact uh, regarding supporting each other. Uh, once we see the initial ballot rankings, what's what's your insight and analysis on the on the Brown candidacy?
2: Yeah, he is probably the most interesting candidate in this campaign, just because there is a lot of wild card to this. Um, you know, I was talking to some friends about the the scandal that brought him down as the PC leader, and we actually had to Google it to get the details of it. I mean, I was a reporter at the time and I, I didn't cover it personally, but you know, you're up on this stuff and it is a very kind of complicated, convoluted story. And, you know, the correction that he got, I think will throw more kind of, um, sand in the air about that. So I'd be interested to see how that plays. I think it's a factor. I don't think it's going to be a huge factor. Um, the other factor is that he supported a carbon tax at that time. Um, that was kind of when he, before he was brought down, he was sort of the new version of a Tory where he would come in and be sort of um, progressive on social issues. And he understood why a carbon tax was a great policy and he was going to bring that to Ontario. It is worth remembering that then Doug Ford came in and his big policy was to scrap the, car, the cap and trade system in Ontario. And he, he won uh, it's hard to say if he won based on that, or if, if that was, you know, um, something else, but, um, Brown, I think brings in a lot of these different factors, um, I'm really curious to see where he goes on the carbon tax. Cause that will tell us something about where he thinks his support lies. Um, and then uh, the, the primary thing to remember here is that we are talking about, you know, third, fourth, fifth ballot situations here, depending on how many candidates get into this race. So, um, the thing everybody should be looking at, if they're looking to what might happen is how polarizing is Polyev. Um, where does he get support from in these subsequent rounds? Um, and how does this sort of moderate vote coalesce? Um, you just, it's hard to see how much of that, that will be there. And, um, where does it go? Um, after the first um, person goes down. So, um, Brown and Shrey picking up a lot of the same space. Um, but we just need to know how much that represents in terms of the race.
1: Let me just pick up on that, if I can, for a second, Your, Um, Stuart's point is an important one for Hub listeners who haven't read the party's constitution or the rules for this year's uh, leadership race. Let me um, give a quick Coles Notes version. Um, the Conservative Party of Canada, while well, it supports first-past-to-post election system in general election campaigns, actually uses a ranked ballot system for the way it chooses its party leader. So in other words, a, the winning candidate has to secure 50% plus one of the vote, and, and that will take as many um, rounds of voting as, as necessary to get to that point. And because we now have a crowded field, uh, it seems unlikely that anyone will have 50% um, plus one on the first ballot. In fact, as uh, as Stuart mentioned earlier, polling tells us that all things being equal, uh, Mr. Polyev may have something like 40%. So then the question, of course, is on subsequent ballots, as the last place candidate falls off, where do his or her supporters go. And you mentioned um, Shere and Brown having an alleged pact. You know What that could mean is that as candidates fall off, uh, the respective supporters may go and vote for the other uh, on subsequent ballots. So for instance, if, off, if eventually Shere underperforms Brown, the idea would be that Brown's voters would, uh, uh, pardon me, Shere's voters would support Brown on subsequent ballots, but let me just interject a, a point here about the fourth candidate, uh, Leslie and Lewis, who comes from the social conservative wing of the party. Uh, it's it can be difficult to discern how many how many party members are represented in 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 the world of social conservatism. But one proxy may be that something like a third or more of parliamentarians of conservative caucus members have voting records that that could be could be characterized as as socially conservative. So I actually think Leslie and Lewis is going to perform very well on the first ballot. She could, in theory, be second after Pierre Polyev. And so even though Brown and Charest voters may follow one another, it seems to me that the introduction of Leslie and Lewis in this race on the kind of right of the the party um, probably serves Pierre Polyev pretty well, that over a number of ballots as, as people fall off, you could see a world in which Lewis's voters go to Paglia, and that puts them over the top, even, even if uh, Sharay and, and Brown's uh, voters can be characterized as something of a moderate or red Tory block.
0: Thanks, Sean. Uh, great summaries from both you guys. Look, uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back on the other side, let's dig into some of the kind of policy issues, issues that could unite, but also those that could divide uh, both the candidates and the party membership as uh, the country gears up to watch uh, yet another attempt by the Conservative Party of Canada to enthrone a leader that can win uh, in a forthcoming general election. We don't know when. We don't know what will be the trigger. But this we know at some point we're going to the polls with a new conservative leader back after this short break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate we'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a Hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Hi there, Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of The Hub. You're listening to our regular subscriber roundtable. This is our weekly program where we dig into the big issues and ideas, driving uh, contemporary events, hopefully providing you with some new analysis and insights. We do this each week with our editor at large, Sean Spear and editor chief, Stuart Thompson. Okay, guys, let's talk now about policy as it relates to this leadership campaign. And Sean, you know, You're proverbially our kind of policy guy here at The Hub, um, writing and thinking on uh, the national policy issues that are shaping the public conversation. So what do you see as the issue that's most likely to emerge as the potential kind of pivot point or fulcrum for this leadership race to spin around? Is it going to be carbon tax? Uh, Is that going to be the the wedge and counter wedge? Is it going to be something related to the ideas and momentum that came out of the convoy protests and uh, the emergency act and kind of public frustration about the role and scope and scale of government during the pandemic? What's What are your instincts telling you?
1: Well, it's, it's worth remembering, of course, that as a as an intraparty leadership, there, well, there'll be a lot of convergence on policy preferences and priorities, there are going to be a small number of, of big picture differences that I think, as you say, will shape this campaign. You mentioned carbon taxes. I think that is one for sure. Polyev has, has said unequivocally that he would eliminate the federal carbon tax should he become prime minister. Um, as Stuart mentioned earlier, Sharay and Brown um, at different times have supported carbon taxes and and I think likely... Uh, Will in some shape or form um, in this leadership, but let me just introduce one other issue that I think has the potential to um, be a big one in this campaign, and that is the question of Quebec's um, Bill 21 Um, listeners may know that it uh, that the the legislation um, imposes some restrictions on um, religious expression uh, for people working in the provincial public service. The government has used the notwithstanding clause in the Canadian Constitution to protect that law. And what's interesting, Rudyard, is um, yesterday, uh, uh, Mr. Charest said that he opposed um, Bill 21. Uh, Patrick Brown has similarly said that um, um, over the past recent weeks and months. And so there's this assumption that Quebec votes in this leadership are locked up for Charest. And it, I think it's it's an interesting kind of experiment here. Uh, Mr. Charest thinks that um, even though this piece of legislation is enormously popular in Quebec, particularly amongst Quebec conservatives, that he can oppose it and still um, gain, you know, a a significant share of of Quebec votes in this leadership. Um, He was premier for a long time in the province. So he obviously has a better finger on the pulse of Quebec politics than me. Um, But I I think that's an open question. We're going to find out how whether Quebec conservatives are more motivated by Bill 21, or more inclined to vote for a favorite son. Uh, I, I think that's a, a policy issue um, uh, that uh, listeners should pay attention to uh, over the coming months.
0: Thanks, Sean. So story, your take, what, what issue do you think is going to emerge as the defining one in this leadership? Or is that the wrong way to think about this? Is this instead going to maybe be a more chaotic, more, uh, more cacophony, less coherence um, as, as the, the campaign for the leadership gets underway?
2: Yeah, I would definitely probably see this more in terms of sort of broader symbolism than about some specific idea. And I know the ideas will play into that, but um, not to be cynical, but I think this may be about whether or not you're a liberal or not. Um, so that I think is where the Polyev camp is going with Charest. Um, And I think that gives Charest a little less room to maneuver on whether or not he supports a carbon tax. Um, he's already pointed out that It was a cap-and-trade system in Quebec, and uh, I I think that's probably where he'll end up. He was talking about how you can't tackle climate change without some kind of price on carbon. And I think maybe the sort of compromise here is a tax on heavy emitters. I think that's what has been able to play in, even in Alberta, in Ontario. Um, That's kind of the nice compromise where we say, okay, we're not taxing you at the pump. We're going after these guys who pump a lot of uh, emissions into the air.
1: Roger, can I just bring you in for a second um, on this question, you know, you've been um, beating the drum on, you know, foreign policy issues, national security defense issues in the context of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, national security issues tend to be ones that um, that have conservatives coalesce on it's perceived as a kind of strength issue uh, for conservatives relative to um, center left or, or left wing parties. What what do you think the Russian invasion of Ukraine does mm. uh, to this leadership, including the issue of of energy development? Which um, you know is this a new opportunity to build some consensus around uh, developing Canadians' natural resource, not just as a an economic matter, but as a geopolitical or strategic one?
0: Yeah, I mean to take that in kind of backwards, Sean. You know the the resource development issue r- resides. And its future resides almost overwhelmingly with the United States. And I, I think it is remarkable this week that we've seen the Biden administration going kind of cap in hand to uh, the kleptocracy that is Venezuela to try to get Maduro to uh, begin to up uh, exports to the United States, as opposed to picking up the phone uh, to Canada um, and asking if they can make up for uh, the lost barrels that will come with the banning of. Russian crude into the U.S. Uh, market. And I think that just speaks to internal Democratic Party politics and the fact that you know the Keystone XL pipeline is is kryptonite for uh, this president and his coalition. So I think there are a bunch of issues there that are unfortunately kind of out of our control and may have have to wait or require uh, a change of government in the United States. Which who knows after this, these midterm elections uh, coming up this fall. We could see a Republican-controlled House and Senate and and a very different take on energy. So I'll kind of punt that one down the road. The candidates absolutely will talk about it in this campaign. I think there'll be a fair amount of unanimity. Uh, I think on foreign policy and defense issues, uh, we'd like to think that those things matter. And I think often there's some chest-thumping that goes on, and it feels good to assert Canada's you know support for NATO and uh, other institutions like that but at the end of the day you know what we contribute is small and we are fairly myopic as a country in terms of what our actual interests are and what we think should take priority and the polls I think will show healthcare education the environment the, the usual trifecta or quadfecta you know will dominate uh, the discourse and and will dominate Concerns. Uh, anyway, that's that's my take. Um, it, I don't it, know what you think, Sean. Whether you think that that security issue
1: could break out as a result of events in Europe. Um, the, the what only, do you think? The only issue I would put on the table in this, in, in, along these lines, is the question of China, um, where there is a bit of a, um, a a bit of a gap between Mr. Sharay and the other candidates. Uh, you know, I think in recent years the Conservative Party's position. Um, vis-a-vis China has been um, pretty strong, um, particularly contrast with with the governments. Um, but Mr. Charre, as listeners will know, um did do some work uh, in a in a private sector role, um, in support of Huawei. Um, yesterday, he was asked about that. Um, and for better or for worse, he he characterized his work uh, for Huawei as something he was proud of. Uh, I suspect we'll hear a lot of that uh, in in the coming weeks. Not just as a um, not just as a kind of criticism of his character or judgment but as a, a, a potential issue a policy issue where there there may be a, a kind of hawkishness um, within the in the party vis-a-vis China that mr. Charre doesn't share which which may go some way to kind of only serving to reinforce um, that he is a bit out of step uh, with where the kind of energy and momentum and um, values are of um, today's Conservative Party.
0: Yeah, I think I think the Huawei thing, as that comes up, is going to be a difficult issue for Charay uh, to to handle because I think there's a lot of emotion out there in the country, and I think especially within the membership of the Conservative Party about what happened to the two Michaels, about the extent to which uh, Canada was humiliated, humiliated um, by the Chinese uh, government in those negotiations and how they were ultimately resolved and the fact that you know he he'd worked for Huawei he was on uh in a sense of that large Rolodex of ex-Canadian policymakers and politicians that Huawei through a variety of law firms snapped up to to lobby on their behalf during the very period that the two Michaels were being held in China is, I don't know. I don't know how you, Stuart, how you deal with that. Because it, it's, it's, you know, Huawei is not just some, you know, benign publicly traded company that is, you know, transparent and, you know, I don't know, as self-interested as any other, you know, tech company in the world would be. This is a company that's tightly associated with the Chinese military. It's a private company. It has deep ties into the Politburo in China. It is, in effect, a kind of de facto arm, technological arm
2: of the Chinese state. Yeah, I, I, the question is whether or not Canadians know all that. And I think the the framing of the two Michael situation as Canada versus China um, may help that. And I know polling shows us that Canadians speak in one voice on this issue. Like, the, it's... if. If Canadians truly understand the situation with Huawei, everything you just said, uh, is in trouble. And I, th- I kind of felt like last time when he flirted with the race and then he opted out, I think it, I felt like because of the Huawei stuff broke at the time, that was a big story in the globe and mail. And it seemed like a big scandal and it seemed like he kind of ran off with his tail between his legs. And I assumed it was because he knew how that would play. Um, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was something else, but, um, yeah, if if this lands the way, you know, it, by all rights, it should land. Um, it's just terrible for him.
0: Sean, any other issues do you think, uh, hub subscribers, uh, should be thinking about in terms of trying to understand how this race is going to play out? I don't know. Arctic (laughs) we're talking about that again. We share a border with Russia. Traditionally, that has been an area of kind of policy strength on the part of the Conservative Party. Stephen Harper did a lot around icebreakers and Arctic sovereignty. Does that come back in some way?
2: Can I can I throw one out, Tishon? Just um, yeah, real quick. I meant to mention earlier, but I don't know about you guys, but th- this is partly a consequence of the situation in Ukraine, but partly other factors. But it cost me a hundred bucks to fill up my suburban minivan. Um, it's the first time I've gone over a hundred bucks. Um, everything in the grocery store is getting more expensive. Um, this is a geopolitical issue. It's also a domestic issue. I wonder if you think that will come up.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's right. And this is where um, Paulie's opposition to, to the carbon tax um, will find salience. It's it's you mentioned Jason Kenny earlier. It's notable, for instance, that the Alberta government recently announced that it's uh, reducing uh, fuel taxes in order to respond to to rising uh, gas prices and and the pain that that's imposing on household budgets. Um, we spent a, a bunch of time today raising some of the issues or challenges that a charade candidacy may face. Let me put one positive um, idea out there. One of the lines that he used in his speech uh, in Calgary was that um, as far as he's concerned, Canada is a place where if you're born here or you come here, it's the equivalent of winning the lottery and that you know his candidacy at some some level is designed, you know committed to trying to protect and sustain, the conditions that that make it so I think that's a pretty compelling message you know that that could find policy expression on a range of issues from economic competitiveness to housing um to education and and so on um and so you know be interesting to see if that's a a narrative and a vision that he sustains during this campaign and brings some policy expression to Um, but if he it's worth mentioning he's up against a narrative of Pierre Polyev's about freedom and- See,
0: Sean, look, you've done it. In the final minute of the show, you've got me all fired up. That is that whole argument that, you know, coming to Canada is like winning a lottery ticket. That that might have been true when Jean Charest, you know, sat in the Federal House of Parliament, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. What's happened is that his generation of policymakers have denuded this country of so much of its opportunity through um, an unbridled expansion of, of of public and private sector debt through, frankly, uh fumbling our our energy policy. And you know, why is Stuart facing high inflation in his stores partly because the Canadian dollar hasn't moved up matching this soaring price of energy on international markets. The Canadian dollar has stalled out uh, over the last six months. it's 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 a, an immense, criticism and refutation of our current energy policy, because if that dollar was higher and if it was tracking the rise in energy, because we're so import reliant, Stuart and I, and you would be paying less for our groceries because our dollar would be stronger in purchasing, uh, everything that we need uh, to run our lives. So I don't know, Sean, uh, maybe this is a topic for our next, uh, our next episode, but I, I, I just think that's a way of talking that is just shut is comes from the past it's like back to the future am i
1: wrong well maybe maybe if if you're right maybe it's the um it's the campaign narrative equivalent of the the launch video um and in which case uh um mr Polyev's message of freedom um, you know may may be more uh resonant or salient with um with core conservative voters i i watched uh, the Polyev's launch speech in Saskatchewan, And I got to tell you when he announced um, that he would defund the CBC, I thought the roof was going to pop off the building. Um, and when you kind of juxtapose that um, with the, with the charade launch event um, uh, you know, it, it does speak to the kind of uphill challenge that he's going to face in this race. But I, maybe if I can try to find the glasses half full here guys, as we kind of wrap up, I'm glad that we're going to have a race. I'm glad that we have a kind of panoply of candidates representing different perspectives, from the social conservatives to uh, more moderate conservatives. You know, last uh, race where we had McKay and O'Toole, I I think a lot of those voices or perspectives weren't represented. So let's see how this goes. And and you know, one of the cool things is it's going to give us a lot of fodder uh, for our Friday uh, roundups. (laughs) That's for sure. Stuart, I want to give you the last word.
0: anything you want to leave listeners about in terms of the week ahead on this topic of the, uh, the conservative leadership race, what should people be looking for?
2: Yeah, actually, well, I'll take the chance to promote a piece I've got coming out on Monday about where this energy from all of the trucker protests, um, goes, and it's certainly going to be a part of this leadership race. It's certainly a part of Jason Kenney's future. Um, So I've got a a lengthy feature kind of exploring that. And I think uh, it's one of those pieces that I'm super excited for people to read.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks guys. Uh, Be well. Let's uh, have another great week at the Hub in terms of uh, insights and analysis that we'll be bringing to you on all the big stories shaping public policy and the public conversation. Sean, Stuart, talk to you soon. Take care, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the hub dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber only hub dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, Check out our website www.thehub.ca for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday.
1: Bye-bye.